0: Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Uh, Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.
1: Hey, Catherine. Hey. Do you know that it's almost June?
2: It is almost June. I don't know what that means, but... Sure, Well, that that sounds like a fact.
1: There was this thing, uh, there was like a running joke about how slowly time was going, especially, you know, like January of this year was approximately 10 years long. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now feels like it's somehow warp speeded from March to June.
2: Yeah. So many terrible things happen every day that it's like you can't even appropriately mourn or pay attention to each terrible thing because another terrible thing happens, and then the terrible thing yesterday is still happening. And well, here's some things. These are just some facts, I'm going to say.
1: Oh, no. I don't care for facts. More of a feelings guy myself.
2: (laughs) Well, we can do both. Okay. 100,000 people have now died in the U.S. We have close to 20% unemployment. Child hunger is up. We have incident after incident of police brutality. Yeah. Which continues to happen.
1: Right. A lot of Depression, domestic violence. Um,
2: this seems like an extremely terrible time.
1: Um, it's hard to let anything sink in and it leaves right. this feeling of chaos and potentially despair. And um, it's hard to keep a focus on anything. You lose track of time. You lose track of your purpose and your goals and what in the ways in which you're contributing. So, anyway. Um,
2: but this is wallowing. This well, is wallowing.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a real tendency to do that. and
2: I mean, uh, I, I totally spend 75% of my time wallowing, but yeah, that's I feel a responsibility to not do that all of the time and as much as I can control it when talking to you. though, I don't know that I'm doing a very good job at that.
1: Well, somebody who has been doing a good job of it is our colleague Jim Fallows, who is constantly keeping this historic perspective on things. Yeah. Putting things into historical context at least.
2: Why don't why don't you um introduce him?
1: Yeah. He's he's got a similar James Jim thing going. Um yeah. his byline is James Fallows. Um he started in the Carter administration in the 70s he was a chief speechwriter and he's since written about global and national politics and uh almost anything you can imagine. He's worked at the Atlantic for Forty years, he's one of the most accomplished living journalists, and the wisest people I've ever met. And when he uses the word "unprecedented," which everyone is right now, from him, I'm like, he really actually has a really good sense of what precedent is, and mm-hmm. and he's somehow able to, uh, you know, remain productive and, if not optimistic, at least not fallen into despair or given up on everything despite decades of seeing these repeated patterns of injustice and terrible things happening and throwing himself right into the middle of it as a journalist so right
2: jim fallows is a person you can rely on for some perspective
1: that was a long windup but yeah
2: hello
0: um yep this is jim hey hi jim Hi, Jim. So, shall I address you
1: as Jim or Dr. Jim? (laughs) Please, doctor, as my friends call me. No, no. Uh, Where do you find yourself, Jim? Uh, I
0: find myself in Hellscape, D.C. Oh, no. What Uh, is that? Looking out over a herd of deer in the backyard. Oh.
2: Why is that Hellscape?
0: Because it is. Deb and I first moved to D.C. long, long ago, back actually during the Nixon administration. So we've seen different administrations come and go. And there's part of D.C. that it has nothing to do with the government and just as a functioning town. There's part of it that is related to the government and sort of rises above politics. But there's a lot of it that absorbs in sort of an osmotic way the feeling and mood and vibe of the government. And this is not a good time for... Government right now it just is, uh, you know, the the sickness. It is national level government. Also, it's hard to avoid almost as a swamp gas in D.C. So that's why I call it Hellscape D.C. It's a beautiful, physically beautiful town. Our kids were both born here. They both finished high school here. But it's uh, it's not the best time for the country.
2: So wait, this is our very this is our very question. Is this the worst time ever?
0: Well, it's, you know, the unemployment rates are, are going to be the highest that, that almost any living person has, any living American has seen. I say almost because there are people who were around, of course, in the, in the depths of, the, of the depression. And the disease, you know, something that I, when I was a little kid, just before I, I went to kindergarten, that was when polio was still an active fear. And I remember the summers when we couldn't go to the pool, couldn't go out and picnics because that was what the sort of the intensity of, of of the fear. So this is the first time since then of having such a widespread public health fear. It's not It's not even the worst time overall for the U.S. in, in even my lifetime. I was in college in the late 1960s, and that was a really bad time. 1968, I think, still has 2020 beaten as the worst year in modern american history with martin luther king jr being killed and bobby kennedy being killed and a president stepping down and all the tumult of of uh, of vietnam in in those years too so that was a that was a worse year overall than this has been so far but it's only uh, late may
2: <sighs> right i mean i don't mean to be cheeky with the question because of course i know that you know we've we've been through Horrific times in this country, but it feels incredibly critical right now.
1: Yeah, people keep using the word unprecedented, and yet when I hear you talking about unprecedented times, I take it seriously. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you my my voice of history uh, overview
0: here. So yeah. there's one, one long-term—I I think I did a piece for The Atlantic a couple of years ago where I said that I realized— Either to my satisfaction or chagrin, that every article or book I'd ever written had been really been about just one question. And that question is Is America going to make it? Because I think mm-hmm. that actually has been the plot line of American history. In every decade, there's been some terrible problem for the U.S., obviously, worst of all, in the 1860s. And uh, it, you know during my lifetime, in, in the, when I was growing up in the 1950s, we had everything from polio to um, the Sputnik sense of being overtaken by the Soviet Union to all sorts of the McCarthyism, et cetera. In the 60s, we had the whole range of turmoils. In the 1970s, you had something that Americans had not imagined before which was gasoline lines and you had the prime interest rate going to 21% when Carter was running for re-election and you had mm-hmm. hostages in Iran the so there've been lots of hard times so one master theme is that the story of the US is trouble and the response to trouble and how that balance uh, works out the other thing that's particular to this moment is that i think that national level leadership and governance is the worst in my lifetime and arguably the worst in our history. We've never had um, a, a head of federal government as unmatched to the duties of that role as, as we currently do. And so the question is how all the other sources of, of resilience and health in the country balance that singular but very important uh, point of dysfunction and the party that supports them too.
2: Do you think that's our main problem right now is the federal government or is the federal government's ineptitude right now a product of underlying problems?
0: Um, I, I'm in the camp of saying that um, I very much didn't like all the stories that came out right after the 2016 election whose leitmotif was, oh, this, um, this election shows a deeply divided people. Um, the background for my saying that is in the previous five years, uh, my wife, Deb, and I have been traveling around the country in the kinds of places that were depicted as being furious with everything about the US in South Dakota and in, in industrial Pennsylvania and in Mississippi and in South Carolina. And we found that if you ask people about anything other then national politics, you'd find all these reasonable discussions about what to do about the school system and what to do about sustainability in town and how to heal racial tensions from centuries back, et cetera. But then if you ask them about national politics, it was just like turning on talk radio or the cable news and you didn't hear anything more. So I think that after the election, we we're starting to to translate what we had seen about the Basically, positive feelings people had about the United States within their direct experience with these Hieronymus Bosch type, type nightmares of, okay. of the US they saw on, on TV mm-hmm. and, and how, how those things could be, be reconciled. But to bring this, I, I have a way to bring this back to pandemic. Would you like me to do that?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, th- the way I would do that is I think in the past couple months, the leadership and the practicality in the country has come mainly from governors and from mayors and from some business people and from lots of religious organizations and from civic groups and not every one of them but a lot of them regardless of party have been saying we need to do this for the public good we need to think of us not us and them oh can i make would you like to hear a speech writing? Point here too,
2: <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, uh, in my in my sordid youth, I worked for Wells as a speechwriter again, back in the Carter campaign, and then then in the Carter White House. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting beyond party and beyond era is that what leaders do in a time of crisis. There's really a simple matrix that essentially every effective leadership message boils down to. So if you look at FDR's Pearl Harbor speech, or if you look at George W. Bush after 9 11 or Reagan after space shuttle explosion or any of these messages, they always do three things. First is, is empathy and compassion. We recognize this has been hard and terrible. We recognize you are scared. We recognize that people have lost loved ones and lost livelihoods. We recognize, I recognize, I, as the sort of head of the, of the national family, recognize how terrible this time is. The second thing they do is express a kind of long-term confidence. We've been through hard times before. This is hard, but we know how to persevere. And then, the third thing they do is they have a plan. Tomorrow, we're going to th- do this. Next week, we're going to do that. Uh, a year from now, we're going to be in, the, in the, this position. And that is essentially just the the, the three part summary of what any leader says in a time when that leader's people are distressed, injured, wounded, um, afraid, et cetera, et cetera.
2: That's and crisis leadership 101, just exactly. like the baseline. Mm -hmm.
0: And we have not heard a single message of that sort from the White House, which, you know, Vice President Pence has tried to do that sometimes, the scientific experts. But I think that is, there's kind of phantom limb pain. People Mm -hmm. recognize they should be hearing it, and they are hearing it from mayors, and they are hearing it from governors, and they are hearing it in their communities, and that's the contrast.
2: Wow. Phantom limb pain is an interesting way to describe that. I feel like that I have totally...
0: Felt that we can have a medical opinion, uh, Doctor <laughs> Hamler. Is that is that a real is that a real phenomenon? Oh yeah, it's it's
1: very real. I like that uh, comparison as well. So, if uh, political discussions are dysfunctional, you know, how do you keep this coronavirus discussion from? falling into that category because I feel initially there were only very small pockets of people who weren't fully unified around the need to, you know, shut down and take extreme measures to prevent this. And then that has slowly grown into a kind of a wedge issue. How do we keep that from getting worse? I think that the part of it, the part of the responsibility is for all of us in
0: the media. Part of it is keeping things proportional. There is a famous saying that the duty of journalism is to see things steady and see them whole. And so having some sense of proportion, that there is a small group of people who Think there's no disease. Who won't wear face masks, But it, it's a small group, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's it's a cinematic group and a dramatic group. But it shouldn't dominate coverage the way cable news uh, tends to do it. So
2: really, if you if you listen to cable news, it's uh, or, or not just cable news. I mean, I, I'm feel like I'm trying to consume a wide range of coverage and in, including our own. And <laughs> it feels like um, the impression I've gotten is that we are you know fairly equally divided into two camps that not only can't agree on basic facts but never will because this is actually about cultural identity more than it is about facts which it, which puts you into a pretty hopeless um, feels like there's no solution to that
0: so i take for granted there's al- there's always been an underlying division cultural division with the united states that's part of our that's part of our burden, our circumstance in life, et cetera. And the great leaders in American history have found ways to have people think of us rather than us and them. Mm -hmm. And it's always a struggle. It's always a balance. So I think this is, if you were apportioning responsibility, Donald Trump and the people who have arrayed themselves to support him are the prime movers here. But I think it's just too tempting for many of our, our colleagues in the media not to portray it as a 50-50 thing, because it's just so much more interesting when there are people outside the Michigan Statehouse or inside the Michigan Statehouse with masks and camo and and weapons, et cetera. So I have a very long and um, troubled history as a, quote, uh, th- that least loved of characters, a press critic. I, I wrote a, a book 20 years ago, 25 years ago, called Breaking the News, about how, um, the tendencies in the press were sort of making it, making people feel less engaged, less empowered, and just worse than right. objective circumstances could could allow them to, to feel. And right. so I, I keep an eye on all this in the papers and the news, and I still carp and complain. But I am itching for the chance to get on the road again.
2: Hmm. Well, I so I, I have also been totally locked in in at home consuming national news sources. And it's, it's hard not to feel completely disempowered by it, but you must have a method for um, somehow putting into context the things you hear in the national news.
0: It's, you know, I, I'm thinking, I, I hadn't thought about this until you all uh, brought it up, but, but I'm realizing that essentially we have a whole country right now of people whose firsthand experience is being attenuated. You know, mm-hmm. they really are, most of us are seeing the world through the media or through Zoom calls. And there's only right. so many Zoom calls you can stand. And there's a <laughs> kind of flattening True. of experience that goes through those too. Yes. And so it, it is, uh, it, 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 it's a, a nationwide Maybe perilous experiment of what it's like when most people can't see the world except out their their windows. Again, there have been worse times in history when people have had this, of, of course, and and this will not go on for forever. Um, but I've uh, the vent for my being irritated with the the national news is mm-hmm. uh, is complaining about it regularly via Twitter great. or posts or whatever. Great. But mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so vent and try to keep perspective? Like, is that, <laughs> I'm looking for some very practical
0: uh, so, Okay. So practical, this is to the, the stage three of, 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 uh, empathy, confidence, and a plan. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so,
0: mm-hmm. so my, my version of plan is I, um, try to, um, keep one eye on the news of this moment. Um, but I find myself trying to keep reading history and fiction of our country and the world in time of troubles. Because again, I think the U.S. has has a long, the U.S. is in most ways a success story, but it's a success story in time of constant turmoil, constant injustice, constant struggle for the the, the trauma of that time. And so I find it weirdly reassuring to keep reading, not just, uh, you know, The Plague, but the work of Theodore Dreiser and of yeah. Jesus, and that just is people have been through how it how our struggles fit in their struggles too.
1: We're hearing also a lot of talk of times like uh, the Roaring Twenties or you know building things. We did an episode on the World Health Organization, which emerged in the late yep. 1940s as this time of great joining of efforts around health issues in an unprecedented way. Um, what can we look forward to coming out of this moment if indeed our history is as cyclic as you've suggested?
0: If we can hope for the good part of of, of a cyclic version of history, it would be that, and this will be a very selective reading as you will be quick quick to note, if we have all the problems now that we did in the original gilded age from grotesque inequality to dislocation to you know even pandemic although it was not quite in the original gilded age it, at the tail end of it and if you think of all the the the, the fabulous reform movements that blossomed out of that from the women's rights movements the good government movement to 50 more the environmental movement was getting going then that is the hope that minus two world wars and a world depression you could have some way to have the good parts of a reform consciousness and things change quickly enough in american history that you can imagine that a year from now or two years from now people would be thinking yes we've come through this horrible time and let's see what we can can do and a, a, a firsthand illustration for me again i I worked in the jimmy carter campaign back in the 1970s and that was after watergate which was terrible after the vietnam war after the only president ever to resign after lots of economic shocks and there was for a while a sense of possibility and the clean energy programs were very popular for quite a while um economic malaise said in later on, but the early Kennedy years had that same sense of of promise and possibility. So it is conceivable the potential is there. Yeah. What's been revealed in this horrific episode is the potential for that is there. And so the question is converting that potential to, to reality, which is a task very much on my mind.
2: You you said at the beginning of our conversation that all of your your work has essentially been about will America survive. And it sounds like the answer is potentially what do we have to do to ensure that the answer is yes
0: there, There's a, a very useful categorization that somebody pointed out a while ago that, that I have found apply is is the difference between complacent optimism and conditional optimism, complacent optimism, the assumption that things will get better. A conditional optimism, the assumption that things could get better mm-hmm. and so the question is what will it take? To again to convert the potential to the actuality of a of a different republic, and I think that it is number one recognizing that that the country now may look like the Hieronymus Bosch nightmare scenario, but is that way only in one part? You know that if you if you go out and ask people city by city what they hate, they will tell you, but if you ask them what they're doing, what they care about, who they love, what they'd like to see. They'll also tell you that. And so recognizing that there are these better and worse potentials in the national reality right now, and then looking to practical examples from the past, from the future, from the rest of the world, how has it been done before? What are the both the themes And the specific steps that allow people to feel better about themselves and their communities rather than feel worse and more, more fearful, fearful. And speaking very personally, that specific task of converting the could to the will is what I feel most driven to work on in the, you know, the months and years ahead.
2: Is there a specific you know story you've been thinking a lot about or something you've learned during this time that you that you think is particularly resonant right now or in- informs how you're thinking about things right now uh,
0: yes and and i'll 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 mention three books they're all about essentially the history of reconstruction
2: mm-hmm. and
0: the second half of the 1800s because Almost literally everything, you know, not literally everything because Facebook didn't exist then, but almost literally everything we're we're dealing with now has its either its roots or its very clear precursor in the time from Abraham Lincoln's assassination, essentially, to the rise of of Teddy Roosevelt after McKinley's Mm -hmm. assassination. I think Ron Chernow's um, biography of Ulysses Grant is magnificent um i've been reading a very very long um, history i think it's called uh, the republic for which it stands by um, historian at stanford i believe it's uh, richard white uh, yes and and it's it, it's long but but worth it of the way voting rights was an issue in the 1880s and it's an issue now um there's sort of re imposition of slavery in various ways, of political cr- corruption, of gerrymandering, of of money in politics, of everything you're concerned about. Now you recognize what a struggle it's been and that mm-hmm. the struggle has often gone the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say also, uh, just to add this on, the podcast by David Simon and Peter Segel that accompanies the plot against America, mm-hmm. I think is actually great because David Simon, his main point is democracy can be lost at any point, but it can never be permanently won. It has Mm, to be won mm -hmm. every week, every month, every year. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the message of the late 1800s, the message of right now, that we're in the process of continuing to win democracy with the threat that it could be lost at any time. And the specific thing that people can do as a next step, although it's harder now than I hope it will be in a couple of months, is simply engage in anything. Any group that one is part of is better than not being part of a group. Any organization one joins, even via Zoom, is a step towards re the national fabric.
2: Yeah. I'm going to have to read those books now. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, the, 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 An American Tragedy by Dreiser really is the American novel. Nobody needed to write any novels after that. Theodore Dreiser is is the worst writer ever born sentence by sentence. I mean, just incredibly clumsy sentences. But at 800 page length, you think, okay, this is the story of the country. So there. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a great so this stuff. book is going to be unpleasant <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> to
1: read. <laughs> you should. Um, I wouldn't blurb All that. right.
2: Um, yeah. <laughs> well, okay, we'll have to have you back to talk about the book. And also, I'm just I'm just noting this for the record. I'm not going to ask you about it today, but someday you're going to have to tell us stories about your sordid youth. Mm-hmm. Sorted. You said your youth was sordid, and I want to know what that. Said. Yes.
1: Uh, well, um, uh, it, it is. It is a deal. Sometime between the <laughs> Rhodes Scholarship and working in the presidential administration.
2: Yeah, some, yes. some, well, it, some things went down. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I was I was at the first Rolling Stones
0: concert in the United States in <gasps> Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino, so
2: oh, that was the, the
0: beginning of, of a misspent youth.
2: Oh wow! Ooh! All right! All right! We're gonna follow up on that. <laughs> thanks
1: so much. So thanks um, so much. Thank hey, you. See you. Take care. Can you explain the Hieronymus Bosch references to me?
2: Bosch, a painter. Um painter of sort of um like these scenes of lots of people like like townspeople dying <laughs> oh Bosch is semi semi-apocalyptic the image that's coming to my mind is just like many people doing lots of things in a like medieval town um and there being lots of like gruesome it's a vibe. stuff
1: Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm looking at some of these, and they do not seem happy.
2: No, no, they're not happy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're just weird, you know? They're not always, like, all death and destruction. And then there's sometimes people you are like, what is that guy doing? What even is that? Yeah. Anyway, check out Bosch. Everyone should look it up. It should actually examine the, the paintings for themselves. You want to do the credits?
1: The show was produced today by Kevin Townsend, with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. Please write to us at, at theatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487. If you like the show, please tell your friends and write us a review on Apple Podcasts.
2: Great job. Okay, so we'll talk on Friday. We'll talk right? on Friday. And hopefully about something constructive. I'll find a way. <laughs> okay.
1: To manage All right. everyone's emotions. Okay, Bye. <laughs> bye.